Welcome to the MFS All Angles podcast. My name is Vishen Docha and I am the Global Head of Sustainability Strategy here at MFS. The goal of this series is to look at the wonderful world of ESG investing from different perspectives and different angles using the power of conversation. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as a solicitation or investment advice from the advisor. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. In this episode, I'm joined by AC Farstad, who is a portfolio manager of a contrarian value strategy, as well as the co-chair of our climate working group. We have a fascinating conversation, which begins in actually talking about what it takes to be a contrarian or deep value investor, and translating that into how to think about an issue such as climate change. I hope you find this as illuminating as I did. I think we all hear from uh, investors and about companies where there's an ESG halo effect. And I think sort of taking an alternative perspective and looking at traditional quote-unquote dirty sectors through the lens of a value especially a deep value or contrarian value investor, was really, really illuminating for me. AC, some of our listeners will know you really, really well, but I wondered if we could begin by you giving us a brief potted history of your background and how you got here. Okay, I am French-Brazilian-Norwegian, but I've lived in the UK since I was about 10 years old. Before that, I lived in the US and in Canada. I was actually born in the US, Um, but a bit of a mongrel have sort of lived all over and then went to school here in the UK um, and uh, then university at Cambridge where I read literature and then uh, I went into the city when I was about I guess 21 starting out at UBS and then going to a hedge fund and then coming to MFS in 2005 and in 2005 I started out as a European equity analyst covering a whole bunch of different sectors. Um, I was the global sector leader in global telecom, for example, but I also covered business services, construction. And then I was lucky enough to be given European banks and insurance uh, just a few weeks before Lehman went bust. Um, And that was my kind of first experience really of fighting in the trenches as a diehard value investor. Um, And then I became a portfolio manager in 2012, working on one of the core European strategies and then launched Contrarian Value in 2016 and International Contrarian in 2020. Great, thank you so much. There's so much I want to ask you about. I might ask you about the Lehman experience a little bit later on, but if I could take you back to your time at Cambridge as a literature student, what can, is there anything behind the move into uh, the world of finance from that position? Is that something that you had your sights set on? Or how did you fall into the financial world from studying literature at Cambridge? Uh, my father had worked in finance, so it wasn't completely alien. Um, and actually, funnily enough, I don't think I've told anyone at MFS this, but um, I was meant to go to law school. Uh, I wanted to become a barrister. And then I did work experience at at UBS and I had a very, very charismatic boss who said, come on, come to UBS for a year. And if you don't like it, you know, postpone your your place at law school. Um, And if you don't like it, you can always go back. Like, what will you really have lost? You've been studying for the last, you know, three, four years. Well, arguably for the last 
22 years mm. why don't you have a break from studying and just see how you like uh how you like equities and then that was it i mean here we are know, the I rest is went, history <laughs> the rest is history exactly so yes and i only really recently thought of the fact that i was meant to go to law school because i was going to law school with um someone called jeremy Breyer, and i saw that he's just been made a queen's counselor uh just before christmas and i thought golly <laughs> last time you know last time i spoke to him he was going to law school so you know it's been a while wow that's that's really fascinating thanks for sharing that for the first time uh yeah <laughs> um so you you mentioned um you know, obviously the contrarian value strategies um and the co-chairing the climate um how, how would you i'd love just to hear how you describe you know the breakdown of your day like how do you think about your responsibilities over a over a week where do you spend most of your time I spend most of my time looking at companies. Um, and so um, so I'm a co-portfolio manager on the strategy with Zahid Kassam, who's based in Toronto. And I'd say that we both spend a lot of time looking at businesses that we think might be interesting either today or businesses that we'd like to own in the future. Um, and it's really a mixture of, you know, speaking to the analyst at MFS, speaking to investor relations, reading the annual report, speaking to senior management and trying to get a really full picture of, you know, how the business makes money fundamentally, you know, what what are the kind of nuts and bolts of the business and then things that could make it interesting to a contrarian investor. So I'd say that is the vast, uh, you know, that's where I spend 90% of my time. And I'm lucky that the work I do, you know, running the climate group is actually very integrated to the work I do as an investor, because that's really been the MFS approach. And so I can, you know, I see climate risk, for example, as something that I just put through the lens of all the other risks that I look at for businesses. So there's balance sheet risk, there's accounting risk, there's operating leverage, and there's climate risk. And it's something that we try and diligence increasingly through our conversations with management and increasingly through our conversations with people beyond management, because I think that's been a real change in, in our process. Um, so speaking to, you know, heads of R&D, heads of sustainability, that kind of thing. Yeah, great. And um, AC, you'll have to forgive me for the slight interview question here, but I love to ask, um, especially given what you do, and it always sounds fascinating when I talk to you about the work that you're currently doing, um, what really motivates and drives you? You know, what what is your why? Why do you choose to do this? Um, and any regrets about not becoming a queen's counsellor or pursuing the the law path? Is it what is it that kind of keeps you here and has you kind of driving forward uh, as fast as you do? It's a good question. I mean, there are lots of things I love about the job, and there are things I've always loved about the job, which is just how varied it is and getting to look at so many different sectors. Um, and, and, you know, compared to private equity, for example, you know, Zahid and I will spend days looking at a company and talking to the MFS analysts and speaking to the management team. And then if we want to execute on owning a part of that company, we walk into the trading room and we press buy. Um, and that's so different to, you know, having to put the financing in place and having a seat on the board and having to, you know, fire the CEO. It's so I love how short the gap is between the thinking and the execution. That is one of the things I've always loved. And people always say, you know, if you love 70% of your job, then 
you're you're laughing you know that's incredible but i do so little kind of boring stuff if that's a fair way to put it and then i think something that's really really kind of happened more recently um is that and I, I know this is something that Barnaby talks about as well, is that the world has changed and we're able to bring, you know, our values into work and our kind of whole selves into work in a sense. And that's how I feel when I think about the work that we do on climate. And, and of course, like I'm not saying for one second that, that, that this is a moral crusade. I think this is all about, you know, cost of capital and, and real risks for clients, but I'm fortunate that for me, it also really accords with my with my private values. And that has definitely given me an additional lease of life on the job, I think, because I think for a long time, I felt quite jealous of, of certain friends who I felt could go out into the field and make a real difference. You know, lots of my friends from Cambridge, for example, were doctors and went off and did Médecins Sans Frontières and all of that stuff. And there I was, you know, sat in, sat in an office. And so it's wonderful to feel like you're part of a positive movement now as well. Um, so all of those things together, I feel like every every year there's something new that comes into focus that you're always learning. It's never stagnant. Um, and the job is very different. You know, how we do the job is very, very different to how we did the job, you know, back in 2005, for example, you know, the markets are constantly getting smarter, constantly evolving. Things that used to be arbitrageable, you know, 20 years ago are no longer arbitrageable. You know, when you think that my dad's generation would have been doing things with prices from newspapers, you know, like things change really, really fast in our industry. Uh, and, and I love that kind of aspect, you know, trying to trying to win against the crowd. And of course, as a contrarian, that's that's a very, very emotionally engaging fight that's really interesting so I, I love what you said about the vocational component maybe we'll dig in on the the aspect of contrarianism AC why contrarian investing what about that appeals to you in terms of sort of taking a, a different stance to the rest of the players on the field I think I think ultimately so something I've thought a lot about I mean as, as I'm sure all of the MFS investors think about is you know how what aspect of your process is it that is repeatable and that is different and that is truly differentiated from what other people are doing and we talked a little bit about it already about things that used to be arbitrageable so you know when you think back to the early hedge funds and they talk about edge and they were simply getting the information faster than other people well that didn't last people you know the race for edge played played its course um and I think the thing that I love about contrarianism or the reason I have moved increasingly in that direction over time is that the one thing that really hasn't changed about markets is that ultimately markets have people behind them and people are very emotional. They are you know, very fearful in times of you know, 2020 and the pandemic, understandably, um, and very greedy when the going gets good. And although that gets expressed in different ways, and we see markets react to that in different ways, and I'd say things are quite accelerated in the new world relative to when I started, I do think that remains one truly arbitrageable thing. Um, and so the contrarian in me really starts from the belief that that is 
the repeatable part of my process that going against the crowd is the thing that really differentiates me as an investor in a sense and it suits me because you know and you can ask my colleagues or my family because i am a bit contrary and i actually kind of rub my hands with glee when everyone else in the room disagrees with me it, it suits me and i don't think that you know that's very very different for example to my colleagues who run growth funds who you know it, it doesn't it really doesn't pay to be a contrarian if you're running growth money for example that's that's usually not the way to go at all so i think it really is about finding a way forward in investing that suits you as a person that you think will generate value for clients because it's truly differentiated um and that you think that you kind of intellectually can get behind yeah, I love that. Is there, um, I want to ask you about the emotional, you brought up the, this word emotional t- sort of difficulties a, a couple of times. Before we go there, is there anything else about your philosophy or your process that um, is relevant here? Before before we start digging into sort of climate change specifically, um, anything else that you'd, you'd get on the table in terms of philosophically or process-wise, that repeatable process that you referenced? I suppose, I mean, one of the things that's really important to me is valuation. (laughs) And for me, you know, I'm really thinking about probabilities, you know, I'm, I'm never investing in in certainties. And I think Zahid would, would say, I'm saying I, but I mean, we, Zahid and I speak as one person, Um, (laughs) but, you know, ultimately I'm, I'm a great believer in valuation. I believe that valuation is the reciprocal of probability and that the lower the price you pay, the less certain you have to be. And as I said, I never invest in certainty, I'm investing in probabilities, and that therefore inherently something cheap is also less risky. And if you think about that in the kind of contrarian sense, you know, it's it's about finding asymmetric risk rewards where you think a decent company has been, you know, thrown out of favor by kind of news flow or whatever. Um, and so I think that's really that's a really an important part of my investment philosophy. And I suppose then there are all the things that are the enemies of contrarian investing. Um, so, you know, a, a very levered balance sheet is the enemy of contrarian investing because you have to be right about the journey as well as the destination. And, you know, one thing that Zahid and I say a lot in meetings is that anything that means that we wouldn't want to add more if the shares were down 20%, ultimately means that we probably shouldn't be there because as a contrarian you should always be buying more on the way down and selling more you know on the way up because if price is a big part of your decision making process and the asymmetry uh, is greater as you know your downside is more limited and your upside greater um, then you really need to stick very firmly in those parameters and we've definitely found over time that that the sorts of assets that we buy have become clearer. So obviously the you know the strategy has been going since 2016 and we've found now that there are certain types of ideas that really suit us better. Are there types of ideas that suit the emotional or temperamental um, differences associated with your investment style? I'm curious as whether you think Zahid is also just as difficult as you are and rubs his hands with glee at a contrarian scenario, but um, are there how would you describe those kind of emotional difficulties or temp- temperamental things in more detail could you unpack that a little bit more um 
for us? Well, so this is something I've, I've spoken to a few of my colleagues about and they think it's quite funny, but I actually personally felt much more comfortable with the portfolio that we owned at the market lows of the corona pandemic crisis, so, you know, March, April 2020, where, you know, by that point we were 25% travel and leisure and gung-ho value cyclicals. And by any stretch of the imagination, people would have said that we were running an aggressive pro-cyclical, pro-inflationary bet. Um, and I felt really comfortable with that portfolio, um, so much so that we begged management to launch the international version of it because we just felt it was such an exciting time to be a contrarian investor. And I think that's very personal. You know, lots of people would have said humankind is in a terrible pickle. Um, I'm locked inside my house with my family. Um, the news flow is absolutely terrible. It, uh, it, I think it's a very, very personal thing to feel invigorated when you see the opportunity set open up. And I think that really comes from the probabilistic mindset, which is that, you know, if you suddenly see a, a bunch of companies you've always loved going from a kind of one, you know, 100% upside, 100% downside, or, or let's say 50% upside, 50% downside, and suddenly they've got 300% upside and 20% downside, that gives me enormous confidence and energy and excitement um, whereas, you know, actually, funny enough, a, an environment that's more normal, where we're not in crisis, and where you're making idiosyncratic decisions, and there isn't a kind of single big controversy within the market, um, I find actually emotionally more difficult. Also, because you don't own things that 300% upside and 20% downside, it starts to become more things with 30% upside and 15% downside. And then that feels like there's much more of the personal and the forecasting and the judgment, whereas, you know, buying airlines in March of 2020, for example, you didn't have to be exactly right on what the revenue growth was going to be or when the passenger numbers were going to normalize. Was it 22 or 23 or 24? It didn't really matter, providing these companies were liquid. You know, you just had to assume that it wasn't going to be COVID forever. And I actually find those things weirdly less stressful than you know more normal markets so i think um i i think Zah i think zahid is, is very similarly built um you know we never we never conflict on on these particular moments um and his instinct is always to add when things are down providing we've done the work and we feel comfortable that nothing's changed so i think we're very well suited in that sense that's great. We might have to get Zahid on just to confirm and also we can ask him um, what a contrarian he thinks you are. Um, you talked about um, sort of the investment industry going through its kind of evolution uh, through time. Um, and I want to sort of pivot to sort of how you think about ESG integration influencing your process. Because obviously, you know, it's it's been here for a while, but we're certainly seeing a kind of rapid evolution across our landscape over how, you know, how much hot topic ESG has become. How, how do you think about ESG integration in your process and the, the evolution of that through time? I, I don't really like the term ESG very much um, because it sort of implies that ESG is this other thing that should be done on the side 
we have an e we have an ESG team or speak to our ESG analysts like this thing that's outside um I think is is an unhelpful starting point so I'm going to push back on that I think our work um you know as fundamental bottom-up investors who are trying to preserve clients capital is to assess all of the risks you know that is our role as an active manager um and you know climate risk is obviously an enormous risk um you know and that is i see it very much as part of part of my job and it sits very firmly in that 90 percent of time that we described at the beginning of the podcast which is spent talking to companies um, of course, there's additional work that comes, you know, when you're thinking about climate, trying to understand, you know, natural capital, um, you know, a whole bunch of things, net zero, what are the options for offsetting? I mean, there's lots of kind of specialist work that comes. And the role of specialists is also important because, of course, there are going to be people who understand certain kind of thematic components better than you do. And I certainly work very closely with Rob and Pooja and Mahesh um, on some of those things. But I see the responsibility very much as, as lying with the investor to, to do the work and to understand you know, the risks and the opportunities, frankly, that come from this evolution. Yeah, that's great. No, I like that. And I, I totally appreciate the, um, the pushback. I, before I, I want to ask you, given that you've talked about um, you know, spending a lot of the time on stocks. I want to get into some some stories that you might tell in terms of your process that just illuminate for us how you think about, let's take climate in that. But before we get there, um, I put a pin earlier in, you know, you're talking about being um, blessed to be given the sort of European insurance companies on the cusp of the Lehman Brothers uh, collapse. Um, is there uh, what, anything that you learned through that process? Um, anything that you think about uh, that helped you learn to do things differently, mistakes made, lessons learned, those kinds of things? Be fascinated to to hear your perspective on that. Oh, so so many lessons learned, so many bitter tears shed. Um, so a few things that really stand out from from that period for me um, were, I remember, I think it's Stan Druckenmiller who said, in general, as an investor, it pays to think that the world is going to keep on turning. That's, I'm not, I'm misquoting him, but I actually had that on my wall. I posted that on my wall a few days after Lehman went bust because essentially it was, this is the end of capital markets, civilization as we know it, and everything is uninvestable. <laughs> I mean, that was broadly that was broadly the message, and that turned out not to be the case for a whole host of reasons. The world did keep on turning. Um, the banks were fatally wounded, but not in all cases mortally. Um, and so, I think that's that's probably the first lesson. And I found it very helpful in every crisis since. It's still on my wall. Um, it was very helpful in Corona, uh, you know, and in, in the Corona crisis, which was obviously a very, very difficult moment for mankind. I don't want to one second underplay what it meant for humanity, but as an investor, it was a very, very exciting time to be doing our job because any company that was consumer facing fell 60%, almost regardless of, of the quality of the business. Um, and so for someone like me, 
you know, it's very exciting to be buy to be buying names like Adidas and Richemont that would usually be, you know, far too expensive for a miserly value investor like me. Um, so that, you know, that was very exciting. And I think a much more exciting time to be investing, frankly, than the global financial crisis, where basically you had to buy a basket of very highly levered companies that were, you know, refinancing and hope that that some of them would come through, if you know Looks what I mean. Good. Mm. Um, there were, of course, also amazing opportunities. You know, you could have bought Heineken at eight times earnings or whatever in March 2010 or whatever it was. Like, I mean, I can't remember exactly what the numbers mm. were, but there were lots and lots of extraordinary opportunities. And you didn't necessarily have to invest in the eye of the storm in the global financial crisis to, to make very impressive returns. Um, but yes, that feeling that the world will keep on turning is something I really hold close all the time and I think it's part of what helps me be a contrarian because mm. it's a kind of fundamental optimism maybe you could say that <laughs> at some point I don't know when things are going to be all right you know yeah um, so that would be one thing um, other things that I learned from the global financial crisis I mean you know obviously Obviously, I've, you know, I've made lots and lots of investment mistakes over the years. I don't think they were particularly in in crises, funnily enough. Mm. Um, and it's funny, I remember speaking to my obstetrician about this, and he said, you know, doctors, they never screw up in surgery. They screw up by giving antibiotics to someone who's allergic to them, and they haven't checked the allergies in like a completely normal, boring clinic environment. I do think that's slightly true of investors. I mean, in you know, in, in, in crisis, you know, your spidey senses are like yeah. tingling because you're just looking for problems everywhere. Um, complacency is, is the big enemy of investors when you think, ah, I'm not going to check the working capital too carefully because it's probably fine, isn't it? It's usually fine. It's, you know, it's those moments where something gets missed in the kind of the feeling of, of okayness in a way. And mm. that's also why, in a funny way, I felt more comfortable in March, April 2020, because I thought everything that could have gone wrong is going wrong right wrong. now. <laughs> I can see it like in the numbers. So I didn't feel like it, it's, it's that surfing analogy, isn't it? Worry about the shark you can't see. Um, yeah. You know, the sharks were circling. I could see them all. So, um, so yeah, it's funny, actually. I think probably the bigger mistakes that I've made have actually been more in kind of normal markets, quote unquote, um, you know, where I've misjudged something and got it wrong. I do love this paradox of you being a fundamentally optimistic contrarian. I need to think about that more as um, I'm sure that's not also not normal. Um, maybe if we, if we can I'm not move... normal, I think this we know. <laughs> that's, that's, the ti- that's the title of the podcast, I think. Um, if, if maybe, um, are there any kind of specific cases that come to mind thinking about um, things that you're thinking about now. So uh, l- less looking back through history, but think things now and talking about any specific cases that you think about, um, maybe as it relates to how you think about environmental issues or, or climate change. Any Anything that comes to mind in terms of how it sort of plays out for you and how you might look at it uh, now and maybe differently to, to others? I don't, I don't know how, I don't know if I look at it differently to others, I think there's huge value in doing the work because things are changing very, very quickly. 
And so one example that I could give is, um, you know, a, a steel company that I looked at and I first engaged with them on the subject of climate and their emissions, probably about two and a half years ago. And the company was very dismissive um, of, of any concerns. And they said, well, look, we can't really be expected to give you any sort of guidance on our emissions because there's so much policy work that needs to happen in Europe. And will there be a carbon border adjustment tax? And will we be given hydrogen infrastructure? You know, we really need the governments to kind of come forward on this. We, we can't lead the way. And then we followed up with them several times over the years and they're completely transformed um, and they're working uh, very closely with science-based targets on creating a framework that they think is really well suited to steel companies because they didn't like the original framework and um, they have a net zero target for their European assets for 2030. Um, you know, they have a climate action 100 benchmarking process, you know, they're like, we've come an incredibly long way. They have a few net zero plants already happening. I mean, like, so I think steel, the reason I bring it up in response to your question is definitely one of those sectors, those kind of hard to abate sectors that I think everyone sort of thought would be a problem forever when we first started having these conversations on climate, you know, maybe four or five years ago. Um, and so I, I take that one because within the space of two years that conversation has been absolutely transformed and look there are still problems i'm not saying that, that there aren't still hard to abate sectors and you know there are certain sectors that still don't have a pathway um but i do i do think that we've come a very very long way in a very short amount of time and i also think that that creates some possibility for differentiation in some assets that have historically not been able to differentiate. That's really interesting. And it's interesting to think about their journey over a relatively short period of time to get to that space. What would change your view of that stock now? Now they are where they are. Is there any, what, what's left in terms of that engagement that you want to have with them on climate change in their future? I mean, there's a lot left because, you know, they don't have net zero plans for their non-European assets and there's still a lot of work to be done. But I think what diff, you know what what was notable about that engagement was that they were very willing to engage with Climate Action One Hundred Plus with um, investors. You know, this was a company that absolutely wanted to change and that saw it as completely essential to their future. And so I think I'd put it slightly differently, if you don't mind, Vish. I think I would say that their willingness to engage meant that they remained investable because, and then you still have all sorts of risks and valuations and, and things, you know, obviously if the, if the stock got to be expensive, I, you know, I, I may divest from it. That's, that's the nature of, of my strategy and also the nature of that sort of an asset. But I think what's important there is had we had continued interactions with them in which they, they sort of kicked the can down the road I think it would have been difficult to have faith um, that, that the company management really knew what they were doing, frankly, because the environmental liabilities could be absolutely enormous. 
Um, and so in terms of thinking about, you know, managing downside risks for clients, you can't really put client money to work with companies who are taking the ostrich approach to risks, um, you know, in exactly the same way that you want them to have audited and respectable accounts. Um, you know, this is just something companies need to do in order to, to be allowed to continue to do business. And obviously, if they're not going to be allowed to continue to do business, then we shouldn't put our clients' money there. So, you know, I think it's, you know, there's still a, a, a number of different things that could mean that uh, the stock goes one way or another way and our investment goes one way or another way. Um, and as I said, climate is just one risk that this company faces. It's obviously enormously economically cyclical. Um, you know, it's a, a commodity product. I mean, there are huge... There are huge unknowns uh, with with steel stocks in general, um, but at least it's investable, which it may not have been had it not done this work. Yeah, no, totally understood. And I, I think that's sometimes the subtlety or nuance that gets lost a little bit. In my experience, people think that they're sort of good and bad, uh, and that that's where the story ends. But actually, being open to it and understanding the appetite or the awareness and the ability to engage with difficult topics is often such a good indicator of whether a management company is going to be up for the challenge that we all have uh, ahead of us. Sticking with climate. Can I just, can I just follow up on that, that what sure. you just said there? Um, because this is something that, that, that I end up talking to clients about a lot. And I say, look, you know, with, with a strategy like contrarian value that can go anywhere, that can buy anything, that you know, is tilted towards, is sometimes tilted, certainly in March 2020, was tilted towards capital intensive um, and by definition kind of polluting, you know, value type assets. We have the potential to engage with these companies and drive a change in real world emissions. And we wouldn't have that potential if we didn't own those assets. Um, you know, if we simply divested of anything that had, you know, carbon intensity above X, X, Y, Z, um, we wouldn't be having those conversations. And so I do think that was an important part of, you know, if you look at the, the climate working group at MFS, you know, I'm lucky enough to co-chair that with Nicole, who obviously, you know, very well, Vish. Nicole runs transformational capital, um, which is a strategy that's really geared towards, I mean, as the name suggests. Um, and I run a strategy that, that's very different to that. And it's a very deliberate move, I think, to have us working together um, because she brings an enormous amount of expertise um, in you know, the field of climate more generally. Um, but I'm the one who's meeting with the miners, the, you know, some of the industrials, some of those more difficult companies that wouldn't fit her mandate. So you know, I think, I strongly believe that that there isn't good, uh, good and bad per se, um, but that you have to engage with these companies. And I know that's very much, you know, the road that MFS is going down on. But I, I, I feel certain that that a pure divestment strategy will not result in better outcomes either for clients or for our planet. Yeah, on the real economy. No, absolutely, totally agree. Um, and maybe then the climate working group. Uh, which we've referenced a, a couple of times. Um, I'd love to know any, anything that you think of in terms of sort of key 
pieces of work or states to the ground or, or actually how that's benefited you as a member and co-chair of that group but in, in your day-to-day kind of responsibility what, what are some of the things that that group has been able to bring to the global research platform at MFS? Well so in terms of the climate working group it's it's made up of um, mostly made up of members of the investment team I think you're also on it Vish and we've got am, a few yes. other people um, and the climate working group is really there to try and advance our work, our, our, the integration of climate work into the global research platform. So it's really been about doing the work, quote unquote, what does that look like, supporting the analysts as they do the work. And really at the beginning of the journey, that's been, um, you know, helping specific sectors do the work. So, you know, Staples did a lot of work on plastics, for example, industrials did a lot of work and did specific kind of sustainability roadshows with their companies and really kind of trying to deepen the work that we all do on climate. And then obviously it also involved things like, you know, uh, writing the the MFS climate manifesto, sending out a letter to our 700 biggest holdings and emitters sort of setting out our stall on climate saying, this is how, this is what our approach was going to be. And it's been enormously rewarding, I think, because I think the kind of work we're all doing has changed very dramatically um, in the last few years. I mean, I don't, you know, we're on a journey, of course, and I wouldn't argue for one second that that we've arrived at any sort of destination, Um, but I'm seeing really good, fundamentally driven, bottom-up work in the climate space. Um, which is really exciting. And it's exciting to be a part of that. And just from a personal perspective, you know, there's something quite nebulous about, um, you know, being a portfolio manager. You know, what's wonderful about the climate group and about the work that we've been doing is that it feels like you're part of building something as well, which I think when you're, when you build something that's kind of assets based, it's nice to see something more tangible than to see the result of it in meetings and in notes. And it's been really personally rewarding as well. I've really loved it. Yeah, likewise. Like you said, I'm lucky to be a member of the group. It's been fascinating and a huge learning experience. You know, just the conversations we've had around things like CA 100 plus, the Climate Manifesto, but even, you know, the carbon offset market and the kind of vagaries that uh, are there and both supply demand and the exchange mechanisms in between you know, really, really fascinating to and, and really exciting to see how it sort of permeates across the platform and see the bottom-up work happening. Um, I see in, in, in those colours, you and I recently met with uh, a group from uh, the PRI, in fact, the Inevitable Policy Response, and um, I thought you asked a great question to the presenter, which I'm going to turn the tables on you now and, and ask you. So you asked about, you know, where, where they perceive the greatest area of either misunderstood or mispriced risk and opportunity to be in the landscape as they evaluate things. Um, what about you? So thinking about that fundamental bottom-up perspective and the work that you're doing bottom-up, like what excites you right now, um, either as a contrarian uh, or, or not, but observing the kind of climate space or, or talking to the companies that you're talking to? It's a good question. And, uh, and I think the truth is, and this really came out of the meeting we have with the PRI as well, is that we're still missing a lot of the data that allows us to really assess 
climate risk um, at the company level, at the portfolio level, at the global level, frankly. Um, you know, even, I mean, one, you know, one of the things we discussed in that particular meeting was, you know, natural capital, where, you know, we don't know how much carbon we can store in soils. We don't know how much carbon we can store in blue carbon. Like there, are, there are a lot of areas that still need a lot of research. And even once they're researched, it will take a while for that data to percolate into a system that we are able to use. Um, the data has come on leaps and bounds in, in the last two years, you know, getting a lot of climate data on Bloomberg and everything else. But you know, a lot of the emissions data that we get is still very backward looking, um, which makes it difficult to assess. You know, if, if, if we asked portfolio managers to assess companies on earnings from 18 months ago, it would make for a slightly odd discussion. And, and with, with, particularly with environmental data, I think we still don't have everything we need. As a contrarian investor, um, I think a lot about capital cycles and I tend, I mean, one of my obsessions is therefore avoiding bubbles. And so you look at areas that a lot of fresh capital is going into and logic dictates that over time the returns will be very high and that's what attracts all the capital, but that the returns will fall over time. And so that makes that mindset makes it much more difficult for me to invest in you know the kind of sexy momentum of certain environmental categories so you know for example i'm more wary when it comes to looking at renewable stocks for example because of the multiple and because of the amount of uh, the amount of capital that's flowing in you know every european oil and gas business wants to become a renewables business and my guess is i don't know the exact time frame but that my, my feeling is that that won't be good for returns over time. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of people at MFS who take the other side of that debate. Um, so one of the things I notice particularly is that there are certain areas of so-called ESG friendly stocks that look extremely expensive to me now and that I would be cautious about. And that again brings me back to outcomes for clients from divestment because you know, if we're trying to drive changes in the real world economy, if we're trying to drive, you know, for example, uh, a fall in real world emissions, um, I think we can do a better job for clients and for the world by engaging with a broader range of companies uh, and some of, you know, companies that don't necessarily look good um, at the outset, but to try drive for positive change. And as a contrarian, I'm always going to be fishing in, in those pools rather than the all clean, all shiny, all bright and glowing, uh, the halo, you know, fully sparkling in the sunlight. That's that's not where I hunt. Hmm. I think it's such an important message to, to deliver. Um, AC, I'm conscious of time, really grateful for the time you spent with us. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions just to end, just to kind of bring this back a little bit more to you. Um, I'd like to know if there's a book or article or a piece of literature that you have shared or recommended to your friends or your colleagues the most? Oh, um, so I'm a big reader of non-fiction. And I'm trying to think, probably the book that I have recommended the most over the last 20 years, and actually, weirdly, I think Barnaby may have originally given me my first copy um, is um, Albert Speer, 
uh, it's a biography of Albert Speer and called, I think it's called His Search for Truth. Um, and it's a very, it's by Gita Sereni. Um, and it's an incredible account of, well, I suppose we've all asked ourselves, how could the Holocaust have happened? Like how, how could this horror, how could, you know, how could so many people have sort of allowed it? Why didn't people rise up? And I think that's the best book I've ever read that goes some way to trying to explain that. Can't be explained, but it, but it's an interesting exposition of it. Um, and on a similar note, um, I also really love Stasi Land by Anna Funda on uh, East Germany. And I also loved um, Nothing to Envy by Barbara Dembek on North Korea. And I'm quite drawn to books about these very, very difficult places uh, to live in. And actually, very recently, I was amazed to hear from our new head of stewardship, who obviously grew up in East Germany and who, you know, whose family lived through Stasi land, really. So I know those are three wonderful books that I would recommend to anyone. Excellent. Um, the, the one from North Korea is not one that I've come across before, but that's been added to the list. Thank you for that. What is the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you? I mean, I think in a work context, the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for me is give me some really difficult feedback. You know, I think it's very easy at work in particular, but I think actually at home as well, um, to sort of retreat from a conflict or to allow someone to continue in a particular vein um, without doing anything about it. And I think it really takes enormous kindness and guts, frankly, to say, look, I think you would do better if you didn't do X, Y, Z. And I've been lucky enough that I've had a few wonderful mentors at MFS um, who've always been really, really honest with me. And that's allowed me to get better, I think. Mm, that really resonates. So, Thanks. Tough love. That's... Tough love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, and so outside of MFS then, um, maybe uh, just a last question before we close. Um, anything else that you sort of devote your time to? What, what do you do when you're not thinking about uh, taking a contrarian stance on stocks or, or climate change and, and its impact on, on the economy? Um, what do you do, AC, outside of MFS? Um, so I have three children and um, I'm married and I'd say we spend a lot of time in nature so in a way the climate change stuff um, <laughs> is probably quite closely aligned to the things that i love most in the world uh, whether it's kind of oceans or soils or forests um, so i think that's probably you know where i spend most of my time when i'm not in the office i like being outside and in nature with my family or reading books about weird dictatorships. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about great crises of humanity. I'm also, as anyone will tell you, enormously greedy and love to eat. Um, and so I spend quite a lot of time thinking and planning delicious meals. That is really what I love to do as well. I love feeding people as well. I have to say your recommendations on ice cream have gone down exceptionally well in uh, in my household. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Happy gelato. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> I had to share it with you, Vish, as soon as I had it. <laughs> Um, thanks. Is there, um, AC, last, very last thing, is there anything that you would like to leave the audience with as a result of this conversation? Anything that you would want to share with them for them to keep in mind um, as we go th- move through this kind of very complex series of topics? Um, value investing is not dead. That would really be the thing. I mean, I find myself, it's amazing how often I'm told in meetings that value investing is is dead, and uh, I disagree for so many reasons. We don't have we need we need a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, let's do why, that. <laughs> on why I disagree, um, but I think that's a really important thing because, you know, as a contrarian, I see a lot of consensus in how people are positioned, um, and. It's not just that I'm willing to take the other side, it's that I really, really believe um, that being diversified and having some value in your portfolios is going to be crucial for, for the next regime. So that is my, that's my plug. Great. Uh, thank spiritual. you so much. Not a very spiritual no. <laughs> to your podcast, Bish. No, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, thank you so much, AC. Really, really appreciate uh, your time with us today. Uh, And to the audience, thank you for listening. And uh, next time, given how big a topic climate is, um, I think we're going to ask uh, Nicole to come on to give us the other side of the climate change working group uh, and the halo effect from her her portfolios. So thank you so much, um, AC, uh, and, and everyone at home for listening.